Well, the, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, I'd be surprised if you've never heard that little bit of wisdom. I certainly have. Some change is made in some organization to address some issue, and the solution doesn't quite fix the problem. The change has come, but things go on pretty much as before. But we're a persistent lot, so we put forward another idea. We start things up again, and then again, things settle back down into nearly an identical state. And all that's really changed is there's likely more paperwork to do. But then there was already too much of that anyway, wasn't there? The more things change, the more they stay the same. The Bible has its own version of this. In Ecclesiastes, we're told that what has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, I'm not saying that, believe it or not, I'm really not saying this to uh, depress you. I, I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, why should I even get out of bed tomorrow morning? It all sounds so pointless. And if we were left to ourselves, then yes, maybe it would be pointless. But we're not. We are not alone in this. God is in our life, and if you know Christ, then you are never alone. He makes all the difference, and it's a difference that's real. I started here today for two reasons, and first is because we're going to look at uh, uh, an issue that has been with the church since the time of the apostles, and it is very much alive in our own day. Lots of things have changed, but we still have this one thing with us. And then secondly, I started here because the only real change which happens, the only change which matters for good or for bad are those changes which occur in our hearts. And God is very much involved with those things on the good side, and he deals with the ones that are on the bad side. The reason that so much can, in our world can seem to change, and yet nothing ever truly does, everything pretty much seems to remain the same, is because most changes are external. They don't deal with the heart, and yet that's where God works. He changes our heart, and then the other stuff follows. Today, we're going to talk about disputable matters. Even though a cursory reading of our text might seem to advise against it. But we're going to do so in the way the Bible does. And we're going to use examples that it uses to talk about these things. We're not going to try to deal specifically with contemporary issues that you may have. Though we might mention some issues that other churches might be dealing with. And there's a reason for that. And I believe that will become clear as we look at the passage. But I will say to this to you right now, Pastor Jim and myself are always available to talk with you about anything you're dealing with or anything you're going through. Some things simply are better done in smaller settings. You understand that. Now, I have two more things to tell you before we can look at our passage today. Uh, first, there's a lot of information here, which is... Uh, 
not necessarily difficult, but it's nuanced. Some things may seem to be small, and yet they are extremely potent. And then there's a kind of a building going on. One point is established. Another point can be made on top of that and understood, and then another one on top of that. And passages like this require much of us. I have to try to be clear. I have to try to anticipate your questions and your reactions and address them so I don't lose you along the way. And you, well, you have to be willing to listen, to pay attention. You see, this is, this is not entertainment. This is serious business which affects the kingdom of God. And the second thing I need to say is that this is about our hearts. The issues themselves are secondary, so don't put them first. And if what we say here today affects only your head, then we, you and I both, have probably failed. And then things will go on pretty much like they always have. But our God wants real change and change for the good, and that's why he's speaking to us this morning. So after that long introduction, I'd like to ask you to join me, if you would, once again in the book of Romans, where we're going to be in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to make our way as much as we can through the third verse of chapter 15. Of course, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. Now, I have to tell you, this text uh, talks about Christians in a way that puts all of us, every one of us here who know Christ, into one of two groups. We're either strong or we're weak. And this has nothing at all to do, of course, with our physical structure. This is a description of our faith. Some people's faith is strong and others not so much. Their faith is described as weak. And yet, whether they are strong or weak, We are talking here about genuine Christians, people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So even the weak Christians are still Christians. That strength or weakness is revealed as we live out what we believe. I also think it's likely that there are people who are strong in their faith in one area while being somewhat weak in another one. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is the way Paul starts out here. Because both groups think that they're the strong Christians. It's not until he defines what he means that we know and they discover uh, which people are the weak ones and which are the strong ones. Both groups hear him say this, and they think he's talking to them in verse 1 of chapter 14. Except... The one who is, whose faith is weak without quarreling uh, over disputable matters. <laughs> now, both groups hear this and think, or at least they should think, well, okay, uh, the Bible tells me that I, as a strong Christian, have to accept that Christian who's weak in the faith. And, and although I, I disagree with him or her, I can't make an issue out of this thing. I can't let this thing, whatever it is, come between us. That Greek word translated there as accept carries a meaning of welcoming them. It has a sense of warmly receiving them and bringing them in. So this thing that they disagree on, 
It can't be allowed to hinder uh, their relationship. That's the first thing they need to understand. And then Paul rocks the world of one group. He takes an issue which was really in dispute in that church. There were people on both sides of this thing, and he tells them which group is the strong and which is the weak. And he does that in verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, and specifically the text reveals later that Paul's talking about eating meat here. So one person's faith allows him to eat anything, including meat, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. He gives another example in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another, yet uh, uh, another considers every day alike. Now you know, don't you, that the person who only ate the vegetables or the one who had the special days thought his or her faith was a strong one? They, they thought that because either they were denying themselves something that this other group over here was not giving up, or, or they were doing something more than the other group did. Uh, that's my own experience anyway, both personally and with other people. People with those kinds of scruples usually think they're strong Christians because they measure themselves, and unfortunately they measure other people against those very things. And when Paul said what he said, it no doubt shook some of the Romans pretty badly. But they did hear it, even though it was hard to hear. And even though they were instructed not to make an issue out of this. But Paul told them, didn't he? I mean, he had the right to, but more than that, he had the obligation to. He was an apostle. And the truth has to be proclaimed, and it must win out, and it must stand. And you know, pastors and teachers have that same right and responsibility too, but we have to be careful whenever we exercise it, just as I think Paul was. You know, he spends so much time and ink on this subject. And I, and I have to tell you, I think as the Romans listened what he had to say here, uh, whether they were weak or strong, they would have had a real appreciation of Paul's heart in this matter. And they would have understood God's heart a little bit better too. And this is so important. That pastors and teachers, when they approach these things, have to be really careful. And the text is going to make that clear as we go on. So whatever side of the spectrum we're on as Christians, we have to accept one another. That much is clear. And we're not supposed to argue about those things. Now, that's what we've seen so far. But I have to tell you something. Even if we don't argue about these matters, even if we keep quiet on the subject, both groups in their relationship with the ones in the other group face certain dangers. The strong are tempted to be dismissive of the weak, while the weak tend to be condemning of the strong, as we see in verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge, that is, they must not condemn the one who does, for God has accepted them. You see, the danger that you and I face in our relationship with that other group 
Whichever one it is, whether you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian, is that we'll judge them, that we will look askance at them, that we will think poorly of them, either by looking down on them or by condemning them. The strong Christian thinks, <laughs> poor fellow, he ties himself up in knots over a little nothing at all. Where is his faith? And the weak Christian thinks that girl doesn't seem to take her faith seriously enough. Maybe she's not even a Christian. Paul says we not not to do that. And he gives us a reason for it at the end of verse 3. God has accepted them. And, and indeed, <laughs> the reality is, and reality is the way God sees things. You, you know that. It's different than the way we're tempted to deal with those in other groups. He accepts them strong or weak. He welcomes them. He warmly receives them and brings them in. And this is what we're supposed to do. And yet too often we set up this little court in our mind and we play the part of uh, prosecutor and judge and jury. But God not only accepts them, he also established them. They're part of his kingdom now and forever. The strong and the weak both, as verse 4 reveals. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So you understand what we're hearing there. God accepts both the weak and the strong. And he established both the strong and the weak. We want to argue about these things. We're tempted to judge the other person by looking down on them for their weakness or condemning them for what we think is a sin. And what we ought to do is we ought to accept them. See, the issue, as it so often does, becomes the primary thing. But it's not about the issue. I don't care which side of this thing you're on. It is not about the issue. It's about our heart for the strong and the weak alike. So the thing God requires of us, whichever group we're in, is, well, sincerity. As the second part of verse 5 tells us, I'm going to read the whole thing. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Being fully convinced means you are to be sincere in your beliefs. And, and I want you to follow this right up with verse 6 because it tells us what it means if we are sincere. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Both the strong and the weak Christians. Weak have some ideas that are wrong, but, uh, but those ideas don't hurt them, and they do not dishonor God. Instead, if they're sincere and they attempt to be true to those things they think, those scruples they have, those ideas, as though they're wrong, they hold. If they live that out and try to, they're honoring God. And you know, the strong have to be sincere too. I mean, it's entirely possible that some people live the way they do, not because they've come to some conviction about the faith, but because they're lazy or self-indulgent. And the strong Christian living in his or her freedom honors God in that freedom 
no matter what someone else may say. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? Are you still with me? I hope you are. Maybe you've noticed something. I hope you have. Uh, maybe you've noticed something interesting that's been happening as we made our way through this text so far, talking about how we ought to act and acknowledging that we, in fact, don't always do what we should do and we often fail. As we've been talking about this, we've discovered, well, really, God's revealed to us his own heart in this matter. You know, when it comes to the weak and the strong, God accepts them. He establishes them. He sees their sincere efforts to live out their faith as honoring to God. And then in verses 7 and 8, we're told one more thing about God's relationship with the weak and the, weak and the strong. I mean, it's something we've already acknowledged as we've made our way through the text, but now the point is just driven home. You and I, all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, whether we're weak Christians or strong in the faith, we belong to God. And the end of verse 8 summarizes this truth for us. So whether we live or die, we belong to God. Now that is a pretty comforting thought for anyone to know. Now if we belong to God, we're His. Weak or strong, we're His. And He is the one who holds us and He will never let us go. So when it comes to the weak and strong, God accepts them. He establishes them. He sees their sincere effort to live out their faith as honoring to him, and he holds on to us. No one can take us out of his hand. And because of that, if we skip down to verse 13, Paul kind of pivots back to our responsibility in the matter when he says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. That's what we tend to do. That's what the Romans were in fact doing and that's why Paul tells them to stop. But then Paul adds something new here when he says instead make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Since God has accepted them and established them and receives their worship and holds them in his hand, we ought to stop judging and start accepting without arguing and making an issue out of an issue. And we ought to make up our minds not to cause harm to that other group. Both groups have that obligation not to cause harm to the others. But as we're going to see in just a minute, the strong bear the greater responsibility. And yet before we can turn there, there's something we need to understand about the person whose faith is weak. And at first glance, when we look at this thing, it's going to seem like it might be a very little thing, but it is extraordinarily important. And it has to do with his or her conscience. And yet before I even go there, I think I need to make something clear. I just don't want anybody to walk away from here and not understand this truth. There are things in the Scriptures which are sin. They always have been and they always will be, no matter what our culture tells us. 
And there are things which are always good, always have been, always will be, things like worshiping God or loving your neighbor. But there are some things which are really not wrong in themselves, but some people think they are. That's what we're talking about right now, those kinds of things. I can give you some examples because I'm relatively certain that none of these issues uh, are a problem for anybody in this room. Most of you, I would say, most everybody that I know in this church, I would say are strong Christians. Maybe you'll notice that we're talking more about strong Christians as we go through this. Some people think it's a sin (laughs) A woman wears pants or if a man has long hair. They think they should never play any kind of card games. I got some of you with that one, didn't I? Or go to the movies. That's everybody here, I'm sure. Or watch television. (laughs) And you should never, ever, ever dance. (laughs) Now, that might seem silly to you. But it brings us right back to that small but important truth about the conscience, which I just mentioned. We're going to pick up the text in verse 14. Paul says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now we ought to get that. (laughs) Paul's made it clear, and frankly, other scriptures weigh in on this too, saying the same kind of thing. And yet our conscience... uh, says things about it and what our conscience says really matters as we see in what follows but if anyone regards something as unclean listen to this then for that person it is unclean do you understand that what god's word is revealing to us is that some things in themselves can be clean, that's pure and acceptable. But if a person thinks that they're not, they think that they're unclean, that they're sinful, then for those people who think that way, they are. They are sinful. See, we're being shown a glimpse of the inner workings of the human heart. And we could never get to this place in our understanding on our own reckoning. This is something that God has to reveal to us. But he has. And what we see here is exceptionally important in our inner integrity. That's what God is concerned about. He's concerned about not the issues but our heart. And I don't want you to make any mistake about this. A person who violates his or her conscience in these matters is sinning. That's what verse 23 says. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. That inner integrity of a person is so important. You and I would never know it if the Bible didn't reveal it to us. See, God can take that weak person and he can strengthen them in their faith. But in the meantime... He wants them to live for him, which means paying attention to what that conscience of theirs is saying. See, if, they, if he accepted their worship as, he kept, as they kept those scruples, he does not blink when they don't live up to that. Now, of course, they have the same remedy that any of us do. When we sin, we confess and we repent and we trust God and we move on. 
Now, if we understand that, do you? I know if you do. I know it's complicated, but if we understand that, I think that you and I can see pretty clearly why this matters to the one who's weak in the faith. But I want to ask you this. Are we beginning to understand why this matters to the strong? Well, let me help you by reminding you of something that Jesus said. It won't be up on the screen. He said this in Luke. He said, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Unless we're strong, have an obligation to the weak. What we do, how we treat them, how we act matters. I mean, we can hurt them deeply, as verse 15 makes clear. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in God. I want you to understand something. Uh, it's not just talking about something they don't like that you're doing. It's more important than that. It's more, what's more important is the thing that follows here in this text. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Destroy them? By what we do? Yes. Not eternally, no. I mean, they're held by God. They're in his hands. Nothing can take them out of his hands. But think about it for a moment. You know how you sometimes feel when you sin? How, how overwhelming it can be and that weight of guilt and that sense of failure? Even strong Christians experience that and struggle with it. Think how it could devastate someone whose faith is already weak. They can be so distraught by their sin, they become ineffective, or they may give up altogether. Now, I'll tell you something. Telling a person in that place not to worry about it because the issue's not important anyway doesn't help. It doesn't bring relief. Because for them, it was sin. There's no array around it. Our integrity matters for the weak and the strong. And yet, the strong can do things that help the weak in their faith. We've already seen how we do some of that. Uh, we, when we realize that God has accepted them and accepts their worship as they keep their scruple and he's established them in his kingdom and they belong to him, we're better able to welcome them warmly and bring them in and not make an issue out of an issue, remembering instead that it's all about the heart. And we can make up our minds not to cause them harm, and, and, then, and then we will help them. Their integ inner integrity will be kept intact and God will strengthen their faith. That's what verses 1 and 3 of chapter 15 are saying. Listen as I read them. We are strong, who are strong, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. That concept of bearing with the failings of the weak is so important. Paul says this in verse 21, It's better not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything else that will cause a brother or sister to stumble. 
Now, I want to be clear here. Paul did not say that you can't do those things. Uh, he is talking about how important a person's heart is. It's not about the issue. It's about the heart. It's about the heart for the weak and the strong. Not saying you can't do these things. He is telling us what our attitude ought to be like. Verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So what can we say that we've learned today? Well, we can say this, that the strong have a special obligation to the weak to help them maintain their inner integrity and not cause them to sin. We're to build them up in the faith. And both the strong and the weak are accepted by God. In our worship of God as we live out our lives in the freedom of the gospel and in the keeping of our scruples is accepted by God. He's established us weak and strong in his kingdom and each belongs to him both now and forever and then too we're to welcome others warmly and bring them in and not make an issue out of an issue but remembering instead that it is all about the heart and we can make up our minds not to cause others harm and we can know through all of that that God strengthens the faith of both the weak and the strong. There's so much more that I could say about this passage. Maybe you've got questions. Maybe some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable. That's okay. Sometimes that's the way it is when God speaks. The real question is, is, what do we do with what he says? I'd like to um, just close with one more kind of practical thing, something that we should do. Maybe I could put it this way. Don't go looking for trouble. Verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You know, maybe God hasn't given you the job of converting others, <coughs> excuse me, to your point of view. He has, however, called all of us to welcome warmly those who name the name of Christ, not to cause them to stumble, and to do all that we can to build them up in the faith. It is not the issue. It's all about the heart. God changes that. And when he does, he changes the world and eternity. And you and I can have a part in that effort. Okay. This past weekend, we went to our family reunion. This reunion has been going on for 67 years. 
It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, some of you have mentioned this before, almost 70 years, I said, and you think that's pretty cool, that's pretty amazing, and most people think it is. But I have to tell you something, 70 years is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And what you do with Jesus Christ, that determines where you're going to spend it. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, then a reunion here on this earth is the best thing that you can hope for. But if you know him as your Savior, there is a day coming when we will gather together with all the saints who have gone on before us and we'll be in the presence of Jesus Christ when all of our sin and sorrows and sadness and failures and everything else like that will fall away. And everything will be good from then on. That's what this table is about. This table invites the weak Christian and the strong Christian. It invites both to give thought to the way they have lived their lives and are living their lives. And it reminds us that there is forgiveness for our sins. Now I'm going to ask if the men who are